You're about to listen to a message from the LifePoint Church, a warm and friendly home for the young at heart. On this Sunday, we have um, someone really special in our midst that's going to be taking the word today. But I want to share something, something that I know about her. I met her a couple of years ago, and I met a very unassuming leader. I met a woman with a lot of depth. I met someone I could call a mentor, someone I could look up to. And I rarely say this, that I look up to certain people, but she's one person that on all grounds and on all fronts, I see how she's living her life and I see leadership exemplified through her. She's become not just a mentor, she's become a spiritual confidant, she's become an encourager, she's become a role model, and um, everything you can pray for in a friend, in a sister, and in a leader. This morning, we have the honor of having Pastor Bolarinwa Akinlabi. The wife too, the lead pastor of the Elevation Church worldwide in our midst this morning. You're very welcome, ma'am. Thank you all so much. Thank you. And if you're clapping, um, I just want you to just put those hands together and really celebrate God. Um, I'm thoroughly embarrassed <laughs> by um, Talkba's welcome. That's so sweet. Thank you so much. Um, but every time I think, you know, and just try to sum my life up, I just can't run away from the picture of myself in, I think it was in Form 1 or Form 2 in secondary school, boarding school in northern Nigeria, um, a place called Federal Government Girls College, Bakuri. I don't know if anyone is, it's very far from here, very far. <laughs> but I remember looking at myself one afternoon on my way back from afternoon prep and just feeling a sense of thorough uselessness. I think that's just the word I can find. Just thinking to myself how completely useless the sum total of what I'd experienced, what I was going through in form one or form two. I, I, I think back to that girl and, and ask myself, how could I have even imagined that God would even be through or would have even started what he planned or wished or wanted or even thought he would do with my life? But just fast forward from there, like a year or two after, I remember having this um, math exam and I got back my script and I think I had a perfect 60 out of 60. It was first time ever, ever. Believe me, the people who knew me would never have imagined it of me. I remember getting back to the hostel that day and even the seniors in my dormitory called me and said, excuse me, come, Bola, where is that script? Bring it. As in the news I had gotten to the hostel that this person that 
no one expected that kind of thing from me. And you know, I, after that whole show and all that hullabaloo, I went back to my bed space and asked myself, okay, so it looks like things are different now. What exactly changed in the past year and a half? And then I remembered. It, it just hit me. I had really taken God seriously. So all of first term from one, we would have someone come and speak to us. Would you like to give your life to Jesus? And every Sunday, without fail, my hand would go up. Keep giving my life to Jesus Sunday after Sunday. And I remember someone nudging me one day and said, I don't think we're supposed to do this every week. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, maybe not today, you know, and put my hand down. But somewhere around the second term, I think I finally got it, that this thing is a relationship. It's not just this thing, you know, that you just do it, take it off on Sundays. And I really began to take God seriously. And I went home from school that term and I had a little money saved, a little pocket money saved from the term. And I saved it up and I bought a Bible. And it was, one of, it was a good news Bible and it had a read through the Bible in a year plan on the back page. And so I thought, okay, yeah, that sounds like an interesting thing to do. Read through the Bible in a year. Let's try that out. And I sat with it, dedicatedly, committedly, faithfully. And somehow at the end of the year, things I didn't even know were fixed in the process just began to align. I can assure you that up until that time, no one would have expected. I was winning prizes at prize giving day. Me, Bola, how? You know, there's just something about really meeting God. And it's beyond the fanfare. It's beyond what the crowd is saying or doing. But really meeting him one-on-one for yourself. That just brings you full circle and makes you fully accepting of this wonderful, beautiful, awesome creature that God has made allows you to look at yourself, strengths, weaknesses, and everything in between, and say, you know what? This is fearful, wonderfully made, and it's okay. So I I don't know what kind of stories you have on your journey, you know, knowing God, meeting God, um, loving God, learning to even love Him. But that's been my God experience. He took me from a sense of complete worthlessness, to a place where it seemed like I was standing with kings and queens. Nothing about my background would even allude to the fact that I would be up on this stage sharing with a room full of awesome people this morning. But that's my God experience. And I trust God that you will continue to experience God in the days, in the weeks, in the months ahead. And you will be able to reference God as the turning point, the change agent, the one that just makes things align even when even when things don't make sense because you've understood his heart you find this you you find stability in following him and in knowing him and in loving him amen amen Amen. awesome it's such an awesome privilege to be here with you this morning hi josh (laughs) good morning um thank you all for having me pastor busola everyone here, you know, um, I, I don't want to begin to mention everybody's name, lest we be here all morning. But really, it's, it's so awesome to be here with you this morning, okay? So just for the next few minutes, we're just going to talk and just, and um, 
let God have his way in the midst of us. Amen. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for this beautiful Sunday. This awesome privilege that we have to come together at your feet. To learn of you, to empty ourselves of who we are. Knowing that you're able to fill us up with so much more. As we receive your word this morning, I ask, Lord, that you will make my, t my tongue as the pen of a ready writer. I ask, Lord, that you will address something specific in someone's life in this room today. Holy Spirit, you know everything. You know all things. You know everyone here. You knew them before they came in this morning, and you would still have a plan after the service is done. I want you to address something in someone's life. Let eyes be opened. Let stones be rolled away. Let yokes be broken. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Come on, someone say it like you mean it. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Amen. Awesome. Awesome. And you know, every time we come to church, we always say, turn to the person beside you, greet them, say hi. And it's become this tradition. But I want us to do it a little differently this morning. I really want you to turn to the person beside you. And I want you to speak like you're the voice of God to them this morning and tell them what an awesome week they're going to have. All right. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to project on the week ahead and think, what would I like to see in my week ahead? And I want you to say that to the person ahead of you. If you're trusting God for a profitable week, you turn to them and say, you're going to have a profitable week in Jesus name. If you're, is that simple? All right. So let's go. One, two, three. Let's go. We're prophesying this morning and telling everyone what an awesome week we expect them to have. Amen. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. It's always a great opportunity when we gather together like this to just, you know, to just meet and connect, all right? It's, it's very true. We came here to meet with God, but we also came to meet here with one another. And God gets delighted. He derives pleasure when we really connect and we really come together as the body. Amen? So I'm talking this morning on the subject Developing a servant's heart. Developing a servant's heart. And the more I thought about the subject all through the week, you know, the more I thought about there's some vital ingredients that just goes together when you say the word servant. I mean, what comes to your mind when you hear the word servant? Yeah? Service, yeah? Oh, no, this is not going to be a monologue this morning, just in case you didn't already guess already. I want us to really talk this morning. Is that okay? Church, a little different this morning. Is that okay? All right, so when you hear the word servant, what, what just jumps out at you? Just throw the words at me. I've heard service. Help. Oh, I love that one. Help, yes? Stewardship. Yes, stewardship is great, yes? Humility. I love that one. Humility. Anyone else? Over on this side. I haven't heard any words from this side. Yeah. Followership. Oh, boy, you've preached my message completely this morning. I love these words. Awesome. Help. Followership. Stewardship. Service. You know, awesome words. And we, 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 we all have a, an idea, a good, I think, a good grasp of what it means to really be a servant. But how is it that sometimes we struggle a bit with really doing what is required of us? Do we even know sometimes what is required of us? 
In John chapter 13, can we read there together this morning? John chapter 13. The Bible describes a scenario where Jesus was coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He'd been with his disciples for about three years, teaching them, working miracles in their presence, just kind of modeling to them what life he had come to introduce them to. And this was almost like the quarter to the end of his time with them. And he was having this conversation over dinner with them from verse 3. I'm reading from the message translation here. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put him in complete charge of everything, that he came from God and was on his way back to God. So he got up from the supper table, set aside his robe, and put on an apron. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples, drying them with his apron. I mean, can you just picture this? This was the same guy, the same guy who came on the scene after Lazarus had died for how many days? Three days, three days dead. And while everyone was crying and weeping and everyone thought, I mean, surely this is over. Same guy that stood and with a loud voice cried, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had been three days dead walked out of that grave. I mean, just imagine the pandemonium that morning. It would have been a mixture of pandemonium and shocked paralysis. What is happening here? Same Jesus who met with ten lepers. And he just told them, go wash. I mean, he didn't even have to do the cake of mud like he did with one other guy. He said, just go, go, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were healed. Same Jesus, right? And here he is when it seems like he's at the heights of his earthly ministry, at the point where all his power should have been manifested and he should really begin to enjoy the privileges that come with this power ministry that he had come to establish on earth. And the Bible says he knew that all power had been given to him. He knew, it wasn't like he didn't know, he knew that this was a very important moment. But the one thing he could think to do at that point, the most important task he could think to do at that moment, was to get up off his seat, take off his fancy clothes, and begin to wash the feet of his disciples. And I find that as New Testament believers, we have been called into a foot washing experience. I'll say that again. As New Testament believers, as blood of Jesus washed, sanctified, members of the family of God, that is the experience he has called every one of us into. Because if you recall in that same verse, he was in that same chapter rather, he was speaking with Peter and saying that, look, I, I have to do this. I have to do this for all of you. And in saying that and in doing that, he's telling us that this is exactly what he expects us to do for one another. So what do we do really if 
this really is the task that Jesus has called us to do, to be an extension of him, washing feet, meeting needs, being a servant. In this time in Israel, the significance of actually getting down low and washing feet is, is, is even beyond just the fact that you're handling the feet of grown men, nails and everything. In this time in Israel, the major mode of transportation was what? Walking. We didn't have the cars, they didn't have... So you walked, everyone walked everywhere. So by the end of the day, you come home to dinner, your feet are dirty and muddy. It's a given. So in a typical household, there would usually be one servant who would be given the task to have a bowl and a basin to wash everybody's feet. So imagine that all the disciples had arrived for supper that evening. Everyone casually comes in and sits. Everyone with dirty feet, sitting, ready for dinner. And the task that was meant for the lowliest of the low was the one that their master got up and undertook. And not only did he undertake that task, he's counting on us to be his feet. And I wonder really this morning, I mean, what kind of foot washing experiences um, does he expect of us in our day and age? So maybe it's, maybe it would be a little odd if you were coming to visit me, for example, coming to my house and you met me at the door with a towel or a bucket, you know, water and waiting to wash your feet. You would be tempted to turn back, you know, wondering what doeth this madam this morning, right? It's just not done in our context, right, to actually wash feet. So when I say Jesus has called us to wash feet, I'm not actually saying that at the doorway of our houses, we all stand and wait for every guest and every visitor and actually begin to wash their feet. Or as we're coming to service this morning, I mean, what would it look like if Rolly and Esohe were standing at the door this morning waiting with bowls and, you know, towels, waiting to wash your feet before you came to the service? You would wonder, how did I miss my way this morning, isn't it? So when, when you think foot washing, it, it, it isn't just the fact of washing physical feet. It's the fact of what is it that God requires from us? What is it that our world requires us to do? How low do we need to go to meet the needs of the people around us? In the past week, um, the church, the Elevation Church office, we had a car washing exercise. It was great fun. You know, and I remember this particular woman who came with her car that day. I mean, her car was thoroughly dirty. Amen? Thoroughly dirty. And I remember she said, oh, that are we just washing the outside? Can we please just wash the inside as well? Talk about Oliver Twist. I love her. You know, would you, we said, no, please, just lock your car. <laughs> we'll do the outside. But, you know, in the middle of doing all of that, you know, at some point where I was washing those tires and those tires needed a good scrub. I just thought to myself, okay, yes, this is what it's really about. This, this is it. This is actually what it's about. Could she wash her own car herself? I mean, of course. But when you go out of your way to meet the needs of people and just be the loving arms and the loving voice of Jesus to the people around you, you're being his disciple. You are carrying his love. You are being his light. You are carrying that light. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth. He says we are the light of the world. 
you are actually doing the job of salting the earth and lighting the world. Because someone is going to look at you and think, hang on, this is attractive. There's something about light. Light attracts. Light is attractive. Salt sweetens. Salt preserves. I pray that we will indeed be the salt and the light of the world. In Jesus' mighty name. Okay. You know, but really my topic is how to become, how to actually have a servant heart. And as I reviewed my journey, my walk with God, I realized that um, it wasn't just one singular event um, that helps me to live my life outwards. I mean, we're all work in progress. There's still ways and places and areas of my life. I'm trusting God to groom and grow me in, but... I just thought I'd share a little bit on one man's journey in the Bible that I thought was really, really, was a really good example for us of how a person develops a servant's heart. And that's the story of Elisha. How many people know Elisha? Yeah? Elisha. Awesome. Okay. Like 40%? Am I seeing everyone's hands? How many people know Elisha? I told you this morning. It's going to be a dialogue. We're talking. We're discussing this morning, right? We're just in. So Elisha. So let's talk about Elisha. What do we know about Elisha? Prophets in Israel, sorry, servant of Elijah, awesome, took the buzzwords right out of my mouth, servant of Elijah, but um, there's this story that the Bible tells us about when Elijah was going to be taken away, and in the book of 2 Kings chapter 2, right, from verse 1 to 9, it's a fairly long reading, so please stay with me, okay? 2 Kings chapter 2, from verse 1 to 9. It says here that just before God took Elijah to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on a walk out of Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. God has sent me on an errand to Bethel. Elisha said, not on your life. I'm not letting you out of my sight. So they both went to Bethel. The guild of prophets at Bethel met Elisha and said, did you know that God is going to take your master away from you today? Yes, he said, I know it, but keep it quiet. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. God has sent me on an errand to Jericho. Elisha said, not on your life. Stay where? No, please. I'm not letting you out of my sight. So they both went on to Jericho. Same thing at Jericho. The guild of prophets came and told Elisha, do you know that God is going to take your master away? He says, yes, I know, but keep quiet. Again, Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. God has sent me on to Jordan. Same thing. Elisha gives him the same response. Today, I will follow you bumper to bumper. You know? So all the way, you know, the Bible tells the story about this wonderful journey that Elijah and Elisha went on um, they started out at Gilgal, and they went on to Bethel. They went from Bethel to Jericho, and then they made their way to the Jordan. And all the way there, um, Elisha stayed on Elijah's tracks. Elijah tried to shake him a few times, but he was resolute. You don't understand this guy. I am following you. Maybe you don't yet get it. Let me break it down for you, Elijah. Where you're going, I am going. You can't shake this one. And just after they crossed the Jordan River, it says here that when they reached the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Ask anything. Elisha said, your life repeated in my life. 
I want to be a holy man just like you. Elijah replied and said, that's a hard one. But if you're watching when I'm taken from you, you will get what you've asked for. But only if you're watching. The New King James says that Elijah asked for a double portion of the anointing that was on Elijah's life. And Elijah said, yeah, it's a hard thing you've asked for. But if you see me when I'm taken up, fine, it's yours. And um, many of us know how the story goes. I encourage you to read it, on, read it when you go on. Today, I want us to just talk about that journey that they went on together. Because further in, I believe it's verse 12 to 15, the Bible talks about how when the, world, the chariot came and there was a whirlwind and Elijah was carried up to heaven, what happens? His mantle fell. But Elisha shouted, my father, my father. All right? And that was that very dramatic experience that day. But Elisha's story of following Elijah didn't start with asking for a double portion. All right? He didn't start his followership. He didn't start his journey of becoming a prophet like Elijah by demanding for a double portion. He started his journey out in a place where he was planting, right? He was um, driving a yoke of oxen, all right, along with 11 others. And Elijah comes to him right there where he was in the field and puts his mantle on him again and says, follow me. And Elijah, I think Elisha says at that point that, look, can I go back? I'm going to tell my folks I'm going, blah, blah, blah. And they have this exchange, interesting conversation. And he says, fine, but let's go. And the Bible says something really remarkable there. It says that Elisha arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. All right? He arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Can we say that together this morning? He arose, he followed Elijah, and he became his servant. What does it mean that um, Elisha rose in that context of scripture? He says he left everything that he had behind. He had, he had something working for him. He had a field. He had oxen. It wasn't like he didn't have any hope in life. But still, he chose in that moment to leave it and call it nothing and just pursue Elijah for what it was worth to follow him. And really, that's where it begins for us, developing a servant's heart. That place where we see value in what God is holding out to us. In that place where he says, follow me, come. Jesus approached fishermen while they were doing their trade. And he said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And God is holding out promises to us, even today. He's saying, follow me. And I will make you. I will place you. I will perform in you. I will use you. And the onus really is on us to take on the responsibility to rise. To rise from where we are. What does it mean to rise? Just step up. To just choose to grow. Amen. 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 And so he followed. All right? He followed in that place. Even though at the beginning it might have felt like a demotion to have left a thriving business, to follow this one-man preaching squad, he followed. Amen. And he followed that morning, he followed that day, um, beginning with a place called Gilgal. Now, what does Gilgal, being in a place called Gilgal, represent? 
Gilgal describes a place of circumcision. Yes, circumcision. It's a word that um, even I don't like to hear in this day and age because circumcision is what? Painful. When you think about circumcision, you think about blood, you think about cutting, you think about letting something go. Now, when a baby is born in our context, in our clime, what happens is that the circumcision will usually happen within the first seven or eight days when you know they can manage the baby. But what happens when an adult is being circumcised? I mean, just try to imagine how gory. I mean, I've never witnessed an adult circumcision, thank God. But the closest proximate I can bring to it is one of my daughters. I remember she was playing with her younger sister one day. They decided one fateful morning that they wanted to fix breakfast for everybody in the house. And being the nice, happy mom that I am, I'm like, bring it on. And somewhere in the middle of, oh, we're fixing breakfast, and I just begin to hear screams coming from the kitchen. Apparently, one of them had decided that the knives we have in the kitchen were too dull. You see, we could use this, but they're too dull. Let's go and look for the nice, shiny new knife, sharp knives. And in the middle of using the sharp knife, one of them decides, oh, no, it was my turn to use it. No, it's your turn. And they begin to, yes. <laughs> it happened in my house. And they begin to pull and shove and pull and shove and tug. And of course, you know where this story will end now. Someone got a really deep cut, blood everywhere. Everything was just. So I run downstairs, I come and I see the extent of the wound. And I know clearly this is a case for a hospital. So we run quickly, jump in the car and begin to drive to the hospital, emergency, please, we have an emergency. Now, as the doctors, you know, observed the wound, they knew already we need stitches. I'm sorry, we, we need stitches. Unfortunately, this one, my older daughter, John Milochu, who needed the stitches, is the one who is the most afraid of needles in my house. Her younger sister, oh, let's take a needle. Oh, needle, okay, go ahead. Mm, okay, and we're fine. But Oluwa, John Milochu, Akinlabi of the Most High God, you need to take her blood, it is war. And here we are where they say they have, to go, they have to stitch her from here all the way to here. Oh my goodness, the doctors didn't know what they had coming that day. Strapped her down, held all the arms, held the legs. No, no, it's a needle. Oh no. And she's screaming and she's struggling. And I'm like, Goodness me, girl, they want to fix you up. You can't go around with this hand. They have to stitch you up. No! And she's, and the hand that was paining her and that she had been holding like this. No! No! You cannot! No! And you know, in that moment of between frustration <laughs> and just trying to reason with this young woman, I got it. I got it. And God was saying to me, you know, that's the way I struggle with you sometimes when I need to fix you. That's the way I struggle with you sometimes when I'm telling you, we need to let this part of you go. That's the same way I struggle with you sometimes when I tell you, you see this jealousy, it cannot work. You see this malice, we need to junk it. You see that person that you were beefing that you thought they were offending you. It was not their fault. It is you. Go back and apologize. How many people know that I'm definitely talking about my husband here? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And just when you're done, you know, feeling all self-righteous and telling God, God, I need you to go and tell your son. You know, that's not the way a husband should behave. And that, that, that. And then God just comes in this nice, gentle voice and says, sweetheart, you get up now and you go and apologize right now. In the place called Gilgal, you learn how to submit to the surgeon's knife. In the place called Gilgal, you learn to say yes. It, it, it hurts to let go of this thing, this thing that seemed so precious to me. But if God says I need to do without it, it means that I need to do without it. In the place called Gilgal, he won't let you get away with the things you used to get away with. Oh, but God, everybody else is doing it. Why is it in my turn now that it has now become an issue? Well, sweetheart, you're in Gilgal. And in the place called Gilgal, God needs to take away those things that will keep us from moving forward. There's an account in the Old Testament when the children of Israel got to the border of the land of promise. And the Bible records that Joshua took all the grown men and circumcised them. And they stayed in the camp until there was healing from that circumcision. And the question is, these were grown men. The law in Israel at that time said, circumcise your sons. As soon as they're born, circumcise them. So how is it that for the past number of years, they had somehow managed to escape circumcision. So what the last leader, Moses, had winked at and had not insisted on, Joshua came and said, you know what, nope, nope, we're not going to let this one slide. We're not going to let this slide. We're in Gilgal now. If God says this cannot go with us into the promised land, it cannot go with us. And I, know, I don't know really um, what your journey has been like so far. Maybe there are just some levels that you know you should have been entering. Maybe on your job, there's just some promotion that seems to have been denied you. And you just can't figure out why you're still on the same level. Why is it that I just can't seem to progress beyond this point? It could just be that you've been resisting a Gilgal moment. It could just be that you've been holding on too long to something that God says, it's got to go. I pray that in the season ahead that God will open our eyes, open our ears to recognize every Gilgal moment. And as we go through that circumcision, we will remember to keep our eyes on our doctor, Dr. Jesus, amen, the Holy Spirit, and remind ourselves that he only chastens the ones he loves. Amen. The chastening doesn't come to the To all and sundry, the chastening comes to the ones he loves. Amen. Amen. So they journeyed on from Gilgal, Elijah and Elisha that day. All right? And then they came to a place called Bethel. Now, Bethel is a word, is a place that's familiar to us. Many of us know many examples of Bethel moments. Abraham built an altar at Bethel. And then the Bible records as well that Jacob, when he was running away from the Kasala, he had caused in his father's house. How many of us remember? Birthright, no birthright. Porridge, no porridge. Oh yeah, go and get me game. Cook me 
lovely pepper soup that so that my soul will bless you. And someone connived with his mother. Hello. Cooked his soup and brought it. And suddenly, somebody was threatening somebody's life. Esau had said that as surely as the Lord lives, I'm going to show this boy. And so Jacob has to leave his father's house in a hurry and escape from his brother Esau. And on his journey, you know, back to his mother's family, he comes to this place called Bethel and puts his head on a stone for a pillow. And as he's sleeping that night, he has a dream where he sees angels going up and down, ascending and descending. And he wakes up in the morning and says, wow, you mean God was here? And I didn't even know it. What does Bethel represent for us in our journey of servanthood? Bethel represents the place where we encounter God, where we really become familiar with who God is. I tell you, when you have a God encounter and you meet God for yourself, a lot of the excuses we give ourselves for not wanting to go so low, not wanting to do the things that he has committed into our hands to do, they just fade away because we see God. In that place of seeing him, in that place of knowing him, in that place of understanding him, our excuses just fade away. You know, it was interesting for me when I got born again, as I studied, I realized that every name of God you find in the Bible, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Sabaoth. I mean, all those names. We're familiar with many of those names, aren't we? Those Hebrew names of God that you find in the Bible. Many of them came from a place of encounter with God. Someone met God and maybe came with questions in their heart. Look, God, I don't, I don't, I don't really get this. I don't really understand this. How will this happen in my life? And in that place of encounter, they just realize, you know what? I've been focusing on the wrong thing. I should have been focused on God all along. And you know, of all the God encounters I could have pulled out this morning, the one that really grabs my heart is the one in Genesis 16, um, the story of Hagar. Do we know the story of Hagar? Hagar was a servant in Abraham's house. And since we're discussing the subject of servanthood, I thought it was good and right to just start from there. Hagar was a servant in Abraham's house. And Abraham and Sarai were waiting, trusting God for a child. It didn't come. So Abraham had a suggestion. No, Sarah. Sarai had the suggestion, you know, let this maid do for me what it seems like I can't do right now. And Abraham says, all right, let's go. And Sarai, and Sarai brings her maid, Hagar, and she gets pregnant. And suddenly, the servant becomes the madame. All right. And you know, it's easy sometimes to read that passage of scripture and say, ah, but Hagar, what is your own now? Uh-uh, you too, you safe. What is your own? But really, I mean, Hagar, she was on her own. She came into the house and her designation was clear, servant. Her identity was clear, servant. And suddenly she's in a place where she has to ask, am I a servant? Am I a son? Am I a wife? Am I a daughter? What exactly? And she was left to try and figure all this out on her own. It must have been a really confusing place for her. And I realized that servanthood is difficult when you're struggling with identity. 
if you're not yet in the place where you're clear on how you are connected with God and that God loves you and that God is constantly thinking about you and thinking about how to progress your life and move you forward, move the kingdom, yes, but he's thinking about you. Servanthood becomes difficult. God gives you an instruction and you begin to doubt what he's saying. You lose trust where identity isn't settled. And the Bible records that Hagar leaves um, the house when, when it became difficult, when her attitude caused Sarai to react and it just became difficult. The Bible says that Sarai dealt with her with a strong hand and she runs away. You know, she runs away from the house and then she gets to this place where God begins to ask her a question. All right? Um, Genesis chapter 16. I'll read from verse... I'll read from verse 8. And he said, Hagar... This is God now talking to Hagar when she has run away and she's in the wilderness. And he said, and he said Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord then said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here been seen by him? Have I, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So here is Hagar daring to give God a name in the place of encounter. Can I dare to say this morning that servanthood becomes easy? Yielding and submitting becomes easy when we understand that the place of encounter is the place where we hear God where we hear what this season is meant for. Amen. My part and my place this morning is to encourage you to seek out those God encounters, those places where you can just be real and open with God, where you can see him for who he is, seek to know him, seek to love him. I mentioned earlier that for the first year after I got serious and began to seek out God and sit with the Bible and actually learn what he had to say for myself. There was revolution in my life. Just that place where I could look into the word and see, oh, that's what his heart is about. That's what his love is about. That's what his speaking is about. When he speaks to you, this is what he has in his heart. So seek out those God encounters. Amen. It is crucial on our journey to becoming a servant and to developing a servant's heart. Amen. From Bethel, Elijah and Elisha journeyed to Jericho. Amen. Now, Jericho is familiar with all of us, if nothing else. Maybe you went through um, by, um, 
Sunday school as a child and you heard, the walls of Jericho fell down flat. We know that song, right? Oh, we're too posh in... We know that song now. Yeah, we do. Aha. So we're familiar with Jericho. If nothing else, we know that Jericho was the place where the children of Israel came to and the walls came down. The king of Jericho, the Bible says, had straightly shut up Jericho so that no one could go out, no one could come in. But it's interesting that the key of heaven wasn't waiting for someone to open the door, isn't it? The walls came down. But it wasn't just about the walls coming down at Jericho. Jericho was also the place where God gave the children of Israel and Joshua, their leader, specific instructions. He said, you march the first day, don't say a word, don't make a shout. You march the second day, don't say a word, don't make a shout. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, just march around, don't say a word. However, on the seventh day, this is exactly what you're going to do. You do this seven times and then you shout. Jericho is the place where we learn to obey specific instructions. In the place called Jericho, God will give you instructions that even though we're tempted to change them up a bit, we learn that obedience is far better than sacrifice. And as I thought about this, I realized that many of us possibly don't have um, much experience in compliance. Jericho is a place where we learn how to comply. But many of us don't have experience in compliance. I mean, depending on the background we come from, depending on the experiences we've had with people. Maybe we've learned that, look, you know what, um, instructions, you know, no, no. But Jericho is a place where we learn how to do exactly what God says, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when, even when it conflicts with our earlier conceived ideas and ideals. Jericho is a place where we say, you know what, if God said it, that's enough for me. And even if I look like a fool following through on this, I will follow through. Because, you know, there's a place you get to where God displaces awesome power. But he says, those who are willing and obedient will eat the good of the land. Jericho is a place for obedience. But Jericho isn't only a place for obedience. I realize as well that in the place called Jericho, the spies that Joshua sent out, they also met a woman called Rahab. All right? And they had a conversation with Rahab. And at the end of that encounter with Rahab, Rahab came grafted in to the family of Jesus. Jericho is also the place where you stop scoffing your nose at the interesting instructions that God gives you. Remember the encounter that Peter had, for example. He was fasting on a roof. And just when he was ready to eat, this sheet comes down and displays all of these meats that he knows he's not supposed to eat as a Jew. Yet he hears a voice from God saying, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And that happens three times. And while he's still trying to figure out what in the world is happening here, God sends Cornelius' servants or emissaries to him. And we know how that story goes. I hope we all know how that story goes. Right. And it was a clear signal from God that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, are welcome in to the family of God. So Jericho is a place where we listen and hear unusual instructions from God. 
the kind of instructions that don't make sense. They defy, they defy all logic. But if you follow through, you'll be shocked. Ah, what did I do? Is it not this that I did? And see how God came through for me. I remember when I was trusting God for a job. I'd worked, I probably shared the story here at Life Point before. I was trusting God for a job. I was working with um, a newspaper company and I was, just, I was just done with that job. Trusting God to break me out of that place. And one of the interviews I was going for, this particular organization, I remember that morning I was just lost in worship, just fellowshipping with God. And right there in the middle of fellowship, God asks me a question. You'd expect to hear something like, Oh, thou daughter of the Most High, the Lord's favor is upon you. You know those, those spiritual sounding things that you know we expect to hear when we're in fellowship with God. God asks me, what does a perfectly inelastic supply curve, demand curve look like? I'm like, this can't be Holy Spirit. Where do you know supply curve? Holy Spirit? How? But you see, I knew the voice of God. I knew this was God speaking. So for a moment, I just paused in the middle of prayer, in the middle of worship, and just tried to familiarize myself. Okay, demand. This is demand. This is supply. I read economics, by the way. Sorry, let me give you that background. I, read, I studied economics in school. So I thought, okay, demand, supply. I went into one or two textbooks and just familiarized myself with it very quickly. Okay, this is how it goes. And you know, the interview I went for later that day, I entered the, it was a bank. I entered the bank, then um, Lagos Island. And as I stepped in, I mean, of course, intimidated by all these, you know, suits. Everyone looking more posh and more put together than me. Everyone speaking better English than me. Everyone looking like they belonged there. And I was like, oh my goodness. I step into the interview room again, four or five suits, looking even more intimidating like, than the ones I had seen out there. All trying to suggest to me that grasshopper, giant, what doest thou here? But I think after the first or second question, one of the men turns to me and says, excuse me, madam, you said you went to so-so-so school. Um, you read economics. I said, yes. Okay, so fine. Can you tell me what a perfectly inelastic supply curve looks like? And you know that in that moment, I recognized that Jericho. <laughs> this is Jericho right here. This is Jericho right here. And because I had listened to God in the morning, and because I had followed through on his instruction, I knew that I was going in. I knew that I was taking the land. I knew that God had opened that gate for me. You know, where I was still, my voice, my voice must have been shaking. I, I, I am smiling to imagine what they must have seen when, they, when I entered that room that day. But the moment I heard that question and I recognized that this was my Jericho moment, see attitude. See attitude. Oh, do you want me to write it down or should I just draw it for you in the air? <laughs> I'm sure they must have been intimidated by that interview. I thought, you know what? Let's take her. Let's, let's take this girl. Let's just take her. <laughs> this one. Let's not let her go, you know. But that's what happens when you come to your Jericho moments and you take advantage of your Jericho moments. When you listen for God in your Jericho moments and as, as dumb sometimes as instructions may seem, you follow through on those Jericho moments. That's how to develop the heart of a servant. Amen. 
So very quickly, he journeyed on from Jericho and they came to a place of, called Jordan. Now, Jordan, I love Jordan. I mean, that's not to say I don't like the other places. Um, but Jordan, for me, I, I, I really love the Jordan place. Because the Jordan in Israel was a river. It was a place of rushing water. It was a place of flowing water. And the thing about water is that water is a reviving agent. Water is a life-giving agent. There's something about connecting to the flow of water and getting into the stream of water. Amen. Someone said to me many years ago, and he wasn't even born again at the time, but it just stayed in. He said, he said there's something about water. There's life in water. And this was someone who was not even born again. That was even before I really found the verse in Job 14, verse 7, that says, there is hope even for a tree after it's been cut down, yet at the scent of water. Water brings life. Water brings revival. Water brings renewal. Water brings newness. And in that place called Jordan, our thirst can either be quenched or we can be overwhelmed by the flow of water. We can either step in and say, you know what? I'm just going to enter this flow and let the Holy Spirit just take me on higher. Or we draw back, we pull back, but it, because it seems like it's too much for us or it's too big for us. Or maybe sometimes it feels like it's too small for us. Remember Naaman. Naaman had leprosy and the prophet, same thing. Elijah had told him, go and wash in the river, Jordan. And he thought to himself, look, there are better rivers where I'm coming from in Syria. Why, why, why did Elisha see my standing before he told me to go and enter Jordan? But thank God that he had a servant with him that day who suggested to him, you know what? If he had told you to do something even more, even more, you know, serious than this, you'd have done it. Just humble yourself and enter this Jordan River. Jordan is a place of humbling Jordan is a place of humility. Jordan is a place of trust as well. It's a place where you just choose to trust and follow through. Someone said humility isn't, um, you know, how many times do we come across people who say, oh, I'm humble, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a humble person. But that's their view, you know, from where you're standing, it look, doesn't look much like humility. And I ask, okay, so what really is humility? Is humility, you know, trying to look smaller than everyone? Is humility trying not to outshine anyone? I think there's a place of pride sometimes where we get to and we insist that we are lower than everybody else. It's, a, it's, it's something about the heart. It's a heart condition. All right? Humility isn't thinking less of yourself or calling yourself lower or less than what God has said. Humility is simply thinking less of yourself. You stop being the center of your focus and the center of your attention. Amen. The Bible says, let each of us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It doesn't mean that we don't have a good sense of worth, a good sense of esteem. Because they're pivotal. If God says he made you fearfully and wonderfully, you'd better believe it. And you'd better joy in it. 
but where that sense of self makes us feel too big for any task or too big for any job that God gives us to do, any instruction that God gives us to do, then we're on dangerous ground. We're in dangerous territory. Amen. It's a place of humility. So all the way from Gilgal to Jordan, Elisha followed the man of God called Elijah. From Gilgal all the way. And at the place where they got to Jordan, there was a conversation between them. When we follow through on that journey of servanthood, we come to the place where we have opportunities to press in for a double portion. A double portion. When Jesus was leaving, he told his disciples, Hitherto, you've asked me for nothing. Now I want you to ask. Ask so that your joy may be full. There's a place we come to in our journey of servanthood where we become so trusting, so circumcised and so obedient and so understanding of what God wants us to do from season to season, where we understand exactly who our God is because our God encounters have given us a clearer view of God, where we recognize that it, it, it wasn't just about servanthood all along. All along, the journey was about sonship. Amen. All along, the entire journey from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to Jordan, it was all leading to sonship. Because the Bible says that when that chariot came and Elijah was caught up in that chariot of fire and Elijah saw him being lifted, he shouted, my father, my father. And in that moment, it solidified for me that this is where they were going all along. That servanthood journey, it was all coming to this place of sonship. You want to develop a servant's heart. You need to develop depth in your understanding of your place as a son, as a daughter. John 1.12 tells us that to as many as believed, to them he gave power to become the sons of God. Amen. 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 My father, my father, that talks about sonship. And it's amazing to imagine that Elisha followed Elijah on this journey through all these paths. And he became this man that the Bible records that the spirit of Elijah rested on him. The kings of Israel and Judah were having a conversation one day. It looked like they were lost. It looked like they didn't know which way to go. It looked like the heavens were shut. And Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Judah at that time, turned to his counterpart and said, Is there no prophet that we can ask, you know, to help us? We are all clearly clueless. We need direction. And the king of Israel at that time, Jehu, said... Is uh, Elisha. Elisha, he used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. And, El and Jehoshaphat said something that's remarkable. He says, oh, he poured water on the hands of Elijah. Oh, that's a good man. We can trust him. There's something about that journey of servanthood that places us in just a vantage point to stand before kings and queens that places us in just a unique place to represent God. 
to shine his light, to salt the earth. I love the example of Elisha, and I love the Bible's account of this journey he took. From farm boy to this man who is advising kings on how to go to war, on where to go, on how to stand and where to sit. The Bible records that he had not just that double portion of Elijah's anointing, but that all could look at him and say that, yes, the spirit of Elijah rests upon him. So I want to throw it out into the room this morning. What is it? What is it that struggles with us on our journey? What is our struggle on our journey of servanthood? Because the journey of servanthood really is a journey of sonship. Amen. What are those things that we struggle with on our journey of servanthood? The Bible says that we should lay aside every weight. And even the sins that always trip us up, always, constantly, going round and round in circles, it seems, just constantly held down by that one particular issue. I learned something many years ago. You know, what I try to do as I come to the end of the year, as I begin to plan for the new year, is I sit down and I try to ask myself, what is the biggest lesson I've learned this year? I mean, in the course of all the 365 days, opportunities to learn, what is my biggest lesson? And I remember this one from three or four years ago. It's so profound that it's still... And someone had come to share with our teenagers that year, and he shared with them that, look, life will continue to present you with the same exam, with the same test. Until you ace it and pass it, you may not qualify for the next level. He says the problem is that the tests present themselves in different forms and in different shapes. So we don't recognize that we are, we are actually circling the same mountain. Because it seems like we're changing location. Because it seems like the specific people are changing. We don't recognize. But this morning, I, I, I want to call us to a place of awareness and a place of recognition. What are those issues that it seems, are we, are we stuck in Gilgal? Are we stuck in Bethel? We've just not been able to press in to that place of settling this, this God matter once and for all. Really settling in on God loves me, God, God sees me, I, I love God and he knows me. Or maybe it's Jericho. Is it in that Jericho space? Well, because of the fact of our background, we, 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 we just struggle a little bit with doing the things that God says to do. We struggle sometimes with obedience and compliance. Or are we stuck at Jordan? Are we looking at the flow of water and just thirsty but yet not willing to go in to get a drink? And I want to ask everyone this morning to just Lift up a prayer because you know where you are. You, you know. You know where you are on your journey of servanthood. No one knows it better than you. The only other person that would be able to give you an inkling and a clue about how to move it and how to fix things is the person of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to invite the Holy Spirit in this morning and say, God, you know where I am on this journey. You know where I'm stuck on this journey. You know the things that are holding me back. You know the things that are holding me down. Or maybe you know the times that I have tried in my strength to get past this place. But I'm just struggling. I, I need you, Holy Spirit. I need you, Holy Spirit. 
I love the Bible's account in Acts where it says that the disciples, the apostles were gathered together in an upper room and they were in one accord. They were praying. The Bible says that the day of Pentecost had fully come. And then there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind and the Holy Spirit came and invaded that space. And the Bible says that there appeared on them tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit filled everyone in that place and they spoke with new tongues. There is help for you in the room this morning. There is help for you in this room this morning because the Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit is an empowerment agent. He wants to make of us even more than we can make of ourselves. If we're struggling with humility, he has the master plan. He has the master code. If we're tr struggling with trust, he's able to show you and, and, and unveil himself to you. Moses said, God, if I can just see you, I just want to see you. And you would think God would be like, what is, what is it with you, God, Moses? You are Oliver Twist, yeah? But the wonderful, beautiful God we serve said, you know what? I will hide you in a cleft by the rock. And as I pass by, you will see me. You know, it's one of my biggest lessons in following God that as much as I desire to know him and to love him, he's even much more, even more so. The Bible says it is his delight to give us the things of the kingdom. All those things we aspire to, all those things we hope for, we trust for. If only we would enter into his presence and just lay them bare before him. Our hopes, our dreams, our confusions sometimes, our pain. Oh, Jesus isn't a stranger to our pain. All through the account of his years on earth, people would come before him and just fall before him and weep. And fall before him and weep. The Syrophoenician woman who had no basis, it seemed. His disciples were saying, come on, send her away. But the beauty of the Savior, this Savior, Jesus, he just stayed with it. It seemed like he was pushing her away, but he stayed with it until she found that inroad, that place where she said, look, even the dogs feed on the crumbs. And he says, yes, because you understand it, you can get it. You see, that is the Jesus that we've come to this morning. And he is able to empower, he's able to save, he's able to heal, he's able to uplift. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you. Father, I pray for everyone in this room today. Lord, you know our story. You know our journey. You're the God of our journey. You knew us while we were yet in our mother's womb. And you had a plan. We trust ourselves into your plan today. Can I also ask, you see this journey of servanthood, I said is a, son, is a journey of sonship. And just, just, just in case you're in this room this morning and that sonship, God has sons and daughters. If sonship is a place where 
there's just been a struggle. The prodigal son, the Bible says, came to himself one day and said, even the servants in my father's house are having a better life than I'm having here. I have a plan. I will arise. I'll go back. And while he was still a far way off, his father who had been watching and waiting and, and hoping and trusting, oh, the heart of this father. That's the heart of your father this morning. Just watching and waiting. Wanting to bring you into his family. If you're in the room today. And maybe you feel like you've strayed from God. Your heart is so far from God. And you know you need to reconnect with him. Or maybe you've never had the opportunity to even give your heart to Jesus. You came this morning just curious about, okay, what, what exactly? does God have for me today? Can I ask with every head bowed, with every eye closed in this room, can I ask if you would like to give your heart to Jesus? Or if you'd like to rededicate your life to Jesus, can I invite you to lift your hand up? You know, I made this decision many years ago and the things I didn't even know were broken inside of me. It was my shock that God addressed them. Even when I didn't even know that this was a problem, the very fact that I exposed it to Jesus and I said, you know what, I'm going to press into this word and see what God himself has to say about this. I just saw that things began to realign. The temper that I thought nobody could tame, it just became unimportant. The disappointments that I thought were overwhelming me, the emotions that I couldn't even get a handle on, the esteem that was just out the window, everything just began to find its place. And that's what happens when we reconnect, when we connect and when there is a flow. If your hand is up this morning, there is someone standing beside you who wants to hand you a card. It's called a decision card. I want you to take it from them. And if you've received that decision card, I want you to put your hand on your chest right now. I'm going to say a prayer for you this morning. Almighty God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, because you're present here. You're present to heal. You're present to save. You're present to restore. Oh, what a restorer you are. You said you will rebuild all our waste places. So for everyone in this room this morning who is rededicating their life to you or who is committing their heart to you, I ask, oh God, that you will begin a work of rebuilding in their lives. Father, they've come this morning to say, forgive me. Forgive me of my wrongs. It's better in my father's house than what I'm stuck with out here receive them thank you for receiving them into your family thank you for washing them clean thank you for restoring them to sonship to daughtership from this moment on lord we declare that they will live for you they will stand for you the evil one will not be able to steal their attention or steal their focus That is our prayer and that is our celebration this morning that they are now part of your family. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. 
if you said that prayer, I celebrate with you. Do you want them to leave the service or stay? Stay in the service. Awesome. Um, it's been my honor and my pleasure to fellowship and to share with you this morning. My encouragement is that as you journey on, on this journey of servanthood, you will see God manifest for you in sundry and diverse ways. He will show up for you and he will show himself forth for you. He'll be even more real to you than your next breath. And that as long as Jesus tarries, your life will be both salt and light in the earth. In Jesus' mighty name. God bless you. Thank you for listening to a message from the LifePoint Church. To download more free messages, please visit www.soundcloud.com forward slash LifePointNG.